So this is an ancient relic from days gone by, from the past. It is called a newspaper, and it's actually made of paper. You can subscribe to the newspaper still today. Does anyone here subscribe to, like, the paper newspaper? Okay, wow. Now, there are more in the second service than in the first, and there's still hope because we've got young people who are still subscribing. And don't you love the way the paper smells? Oh, yeah. It smells like paper. It's really good. I don't know how you get your news, whether it's through a newspaper, whether it's a news app, whether it's the TV, whether you're that guy that leaves Fox News on in the background and you think that's like background music. I don't know how you get your news, but, but if you read the news, if you look at the news, if you think about the news, if you have a friend that reads the news and tells you about the news, you know that like life ain't always easy. You know that like most of the time, most of the things that are in the news are like tough things, difficult things. Like they have to actually throw a few things at the in at the end so they're not all completely depressed when we f- read the news, right? Have you ever read the news or watched the news or looked at the news and been like, Lord, what is happening right now? Have you ever looked at what's going on in the world and gotten a little bit discouraged? Have you ever had that time when you've just seen the injustice that's in the world, seen the uh, anarchy, seen the the tough things that are going on, and just really wonder, like, Lord, you said you're going to come, and now seems like a pretty good time. You ever get frustrated at God for his delay? Right? You ever think, like, Lord, um, I'm reading the news, and it's not looking good. Now I'm reading Revelation. Now seems like the right time. Right? It's so easy for us to get discouraged and frustrated. It's easy to look at the world and get disheartened, to to lose hope. It's easy to get frustrated. And not only when we read the news and we look at the things that are happening to everybody else, but but bring it home, right? What about your own personal experience? What are the trials and the hardships, the difficulties, the frustrations, the relational brokenness? What about the things that you personally experience, the loss Do you ever get disheartened? Do you ever say, God, I'm trying to walk the walk. I'm trying to live the life. God, I'm praying and I'm praying and I'm praying and you don't seem to be responding. Isn't it easy to get discouraged? Isn't it easy to lose heart? Jesus tells a story in the midst of the parables that he teaches in Luke. In Luke 18, 1 through 8. And the story that he tells is a story of a persistent widow and the point of the parable is given right up front in Luke 18:1, where it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. You see, Jesus knew that his disciples in the first century, this first group of men who followed him and who were going to go out and start his church, he knew that there would come times when they would lose heart. He knew that some of them would be exiled, that some of them would be... Uh, martyred. He knew that they would face trouble and trial and hardship and persecution. And he knew that the temptation would be there for them to lose heart. But I believe Jesus also knew the things that we would face in the 21st century. That there's nothing that can happen and be reported in a newspaper that catches Jesus by surprise. That there's nothing that you could read on your news app or hear on Fox News that would catch God off guard. And I think that Jesus knew that his disciples in the 21st century, the followers of Jesus, could at times be tempted to lose heart, to be disheartened, to be frustrated, to be weary. And so he tells a story that's going to address that very thing. And maybe you're here today, 
and you're disheartened by what you see in the world around you, that you're frustrated by what you see going on in life. Or maybe you're here today and you're frustrated and disheartened because you've been praying for something for a long time and God doesn't seem to be answering that prayer. Or maybe you're personally disheartened and frustrated because of loss or brokenness or other circumstances that you're going through. And I would pray that God's words today through this parable would be an encouragement and would strengthen our faith. So I read to you verse 1, and we're going to actually leave that for the end because that's kind of the application. But I want you to see the parable itself in verses 2 through 5, Luke 18, starting in verse 2. And in 2 through 5, he tells this story, and it goes like this. He, that is Jesus, said, and he's going to say this to his disciples, primarily talking to his disciples right now. He said, in a certain city there was a judge. Now I'm sure some of you have stood before a judge. We won't talk about that this morning. That's between you and the Lord. But in that day, judges were really important. As a matter of fact, from Old Testament times, judges in the nation of Israel were really important. You'll recall the story in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Old Testament, the story where Moses is there, and Moses is trying to deliberate all of the different cases for the people of God. And many of these were civil cases, justice and injustice, the working out of God's law. And Moses was trying to do this for all of these people, and he's getting worn out. And his father-in-law, who has a really amazing biblical name, and if any of you are pregnant with a boy, you may consider this name. Moses' father-in-law's name was Jethro. It's a great name. No? Anybody? Okay. Jethro, not from Alabama, but Jethro was... Jethro says to Moses, hey, listen... You can't do this all yourself. You need to, like, get some other men to help out. And, and you need to get some people to help out who, number one, fear God. Like, they love God. They have a relationship with God. They care about God's laws. They know God's laws. They, they love God. And number two, they need to care about people. They're going to be exercising judgments over people in their lives, and so they need to love people. And so if you read the Old Testament stipulations for what these judges were to do and to be, the civil judges, a little bit different, by the way, than the book of Judges, but the, the civil judges, what they were supposed to do, they were supposed to love God and care about God and His law and want to see justice, and they were supposed to care about people, and they were going to see justice done for God and His people. And what had happened by the New Testament times, by the time of Jesus, it's actually interesting. You can, you can read um, ancient Jewish writings that, that are kind of commentaries on the Bible. One of them is called the Talmud, and, and rabbis wrote these things. And in there, it actually says that by the time of Jesus, and, and a little bit after the time of Jesus, when that was written, that judges had become so corrupt that these people that were supposed to exercise judgment and, and were set aside for God, they had become so corrupt that there's a Hebrew name. It's actually two words. I'm not going to give it to you because it's really strange and hard to pronounce, and I'd probably botch it. But it was two words, and, and that, was called, that was their title, and they were judges of prohibitions. But what had happened is, is that people, because they were so corrupt, had changed literally one letter, and there was a play on words, and instead of judges of prohibitions, they were called robber judges. They just changed one little word. It almost sounded like the same thing, but everybody would hear it and laugh and be like, oh, yeah, the robber judges, right? Because they were so bad by the time of Jesus. So look what Jesus says about this person. He's painting a picture here, telling this story. There was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. The robber judge 
was a judge in Jesus' stories. He's depicting this story, and he's going to make a point. He says there was a judge, and his job was to, to love God and to love people and to exercise judgment. But instead, he didn't fear God at all. He didn't care about God. He was supposed to exercise judgment on the laws of God. But he didn't care about God at all. And not only did he not care about God, he didn't care about people. You may recognize readily that he's actually broken the two most important commandments, right? When Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And this guy didn't do either. The word there where it says he didn't respect people, in the original language, that word means that he was shameless. We say today that if someone is shameless, it means they just don't care what anybody thinks, right? They'll go to Walmart looking like anything, and it doesn't matter. They're just shameless. You can see shameless people all the time. And that was this judge. He didn't respect God or respect people. The other character comes in in verse 3. It says that there was a widow in the city. If you know anything about widows in that day, they were the most vulnerable and helpless people in society. That they had lost their husband, which meant that they had lost in that day their means of not only income, but in many ways their means of identity. And they were the most helpless and the most vulnerable. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that there are special rules and laws governing how God's people would care for widows because God, in fact, cares for the poor and the helpless. And in the book of James, when it says pure religion undefiled before this, is that they would look out for orphans and widows. It was because of that, those were the most helpless people in that society. So you have a very powerful civil judge in this particular story. And then you have a, a very weak and helpless widow. And it says, in that city she kept coming to him kept coming to him over and over and over again saying give me justice against my adversary as jesus tells the story they're understanding that this would have been a person who in some way had been hard done by that someone had maybe taken what was rightfully hers or had run off with whatever had been left um, to maintain her as she was a widow but some way or another injustice had been done and she needed justice. And so she's going to keep coming to this judge and asking for, judge, for him to give her justice. And here's how it worked in, in that day. The picture that would have been going on in their minds is something that they saw all the time because you had to have these in, in each village. You had to have one of these like civil judge kind of places, a little courthouse. But they usually set him up in a tent or maybe in a small building. And you would have the judge who would be there. And he would sit on what was almost like a throne. And around him would be his uh, assistants or his secretaries. And then the really cool thing was, apparently in Jesus' day, these like courtroom TV shows were really cool too. Just like now, we got any like, you know, Judge Judy fans or... You guys remember Judge Wapner, the people's court? Oh, yeah. We did 90s trivia yesterday at the men's retreat. We should have had something about Judge Wapner. But apparently in that day, people liked to listen to other people's dirty laundry as well. And so, like, you could come, anybody could come and just sit outside and listen, right? And heckle and laugh and talk and do whatever they wanted. And if you had a case that needed to be pled, you would come to the judge at the civil court there in your village. And you would come in and you would ask the assistant to put you on the list, the secretary. And then they would tell the judge it was your turn and you would go in. The only problem with this is that because these judges were robber judges... They needed something in order to be able to, to try your case. And what you would usually have to do is that you would have to bribe the secretary, provide a bribe, or uh, they also called it a fee. 
you would provide a bribe for the secretary, and then the secretary would tell the judge, and then the judge would call you and, and see and hear your case. This widow comes. She has nothing. Number one, she's a woman, and so she's really not even supposed to be there because court was a place where men went. Men went to, tr to plead for justice, and men went to have their cases seen by a judge. And there was the interplay that happened there. So she was, in that day, really not even supposed to be there. And so as a woman, she had a strike against her. As a widow, we know that she didn't have a husband, and apparently she didn't have a son-in-law or a brother or a brother-in-law or any other extended male family that would come and bring her case before the judge. And she was poor. She had nothing to give this judge. Why would he not listen to her? Why did she have to come repeatedly? Why was it this like over and over every day that she was always coming to his court and he never wanted to hear from her? Because she had nothing to pay with. She had nothing to give him. That, that's the scene. It says, verse 4, For a while he refused. Day in, day out, we're not told how long. She keeps coming. She keeps saying, please hear my case. Please plead my case. Please help me. It's interesting, some commentators say that she did have one thing going for her in that she was a woman, that if a man had come and had kept doing this over and over and over again, he would have been punished, but that the women in that culture, they were at least respected enough that they wouldn't, she wouldn't have been punished for this. But you can see that in this scene where people are gathered around and everybody wants to have their case heard, and he who bribes the best is the one who has it heard. Finally, the judge says, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Now, if you have to advertise that, then it tells you a lot about what you think about yourself, right? If you have to advertise how bad you are, you're pretty bad. And this guy was advertising. Now, I don't care about God. I don't care about people. Imagine the judge saying that. This guy would never get hired in Olympia. Sorry. We're, we're back. I don't fear God. I don't care about people. He's advertising that. And Jesus is telling this story. And I want you to see that it's said twice. Because as Jesus is telling this story, he's building something. He's building a case here. You're supposed to see like a really corrupt judge. Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Parents, let's chat. <laughs> because you know what this feels like, right? Absolutely. I heard a pastor say this is like a hostage situation, <laughs> right? Parent, kid comes to parent. Okay, we're in the grocery store. Either I can melt down here and make us all look really, really bad, or you can give me the candy that I'm asking for. That's a hostage situation. Some of you are looking at your kids like, oh, wow. And you know who the hostage is in this situation? It's not your kid. They might be trying to convince everybody else that they're a hostage right now. You're, in fact, the hostage, right? But the judge here says, like, I don't want to give her justice. I don't even want to deal with her because she's like nothing to me. But she just keeps coming. She just keeps bothering me. She just is, is here all the time. And there are all these men, and I hear this one voice, and I'm like, that's not a man's voice. It's this woman. 
And it's so funny because in the text, actually, the word where it says that she is beating him down, that's actually, I'm not making this up, it's a boxing word. Okay, when Paul says, uh, I, I beat my body, I buffet my body and make it a slave, it's the same word. And, and it actually meant and can be translated to blacken the eye. He's like, this lady is driving me so nuts, she's giving me a black eye. She was like a verbal cage fighter, right? She knew all the moves. She knew how to throw the punches. And he was like, she just keeps coming at me over and over and over again. You got a, a bad judge. And you got a cage fighting widow. And I don't know what a cage fighting widow would look like today. But she probably had cornrows. She probably had one of those black mouthpieces. She knew things that would hurt me and that wouldn't be fun. But she keeps coming after the judge. Why? This lady has nothing but tenacity whereby she can pursue the justice that she knows she deserves. Nothing but her tenacity. And there are some lessons in here, and Jesus is going to teach us some important lessons through this scene. But I want you to see a corrupt judge who has the ability to give justice, but is withholding justice. And then a tenacious widow who has nothing but her tenacity, who says, I will get the justice that's been that I deserve. And I want you to see that she ultimately gets the justice, right? She gets what she's asking for. But I like to ask you, does the judge's heart change? No. The judge doesn't give her what she wants because his heart changes and suddenly he, all of a sudden he loves God and loves people. He just gives it to her to, to get her out of his hair. And here's why that's so important. Jesus is telling this story to help us understand a, a spiritual point, a parable, a short story which illustrates a shocking spiritual point. Some people see God as that judge. Some people think of God as that angry judge who stands there with his arms folded and is like, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm not going to give you what you want. I don't care what you want. I'm not interested in giving you that. And if you just bug him enough, then he'll say, okay, fine, just leave me alone. That's bad parenting. And that's an even worse understanding and, and an unbiblical understanding of God as Father. What Jesus is actually doing and telling this story is what he did in chapter 16, verse 1, when we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager. He's using what was called a lesser to greater, lesser than to greater than teaching technique. The rabbis used it regularly. It's called a how much more teaching technique, where he builds a case in chapter 16, verse 1. You remember, it was an un, uh, uh, a dishonest manager. And Jesus says that that dishonest manager was commended for his shrewdness. How much more will you be? It's the same thing that we'll see here that Jesus is doing. Is he just built this picture. We just looked at a picture where he says that there's this unjust, this corrupt judge, and he gave justice. How much more? Look at verses 6 and following where he teaches this lesson. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He says, look, look at what just happened in the story. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? This is a shocking twist, a shocking turn. The people who were listening to this, the disciples, would have understood what an unjust judge looked like. 
And they may have even seen that scene that he just described play out in real life. And he's saying, if that wicked judge will give justice, even though he doesn't want to, how much more will your loving and righteous Heavenly Father give justice to his elect, his chosen children? To be elect means you're a chosen child of God. How much more will God give justice to his chosen children? And it says as they cry out to him day and night, the persistence, the tenacity. And the picture is of a loving heavenly father, God, not an angry, unjust judge. And as you contrast those two, you see what you're supposed to see, like a God of love and a God of justice who gives good gifts to his children, as Matthew says. I want to talk to you for a minute about the word tenacity. Some people call it persistence. She's called the persistent widow. Tenacity, persistence, grit. There's something that even like secular uh, writers, authors, and sociologists are talking about in, in our country and really in developed countries, in, in first world countries in the 21st century. And it's called the comfort crisis. It's that we have been so prone and so accustomed to get what we want, when we want, how we want it, and have it now, that it's actually becoming a crisis. And to go along with that is the lack of persistence or tenacity or grit. The ability to want something and see some future outcome and to know how to work for it and to be persistent with it as opposed to giving up. And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you have to agree that it easier, we live in an easier is better world. And that everything is made easier to get. And when we have that, that our persistence or our tenacity or our grit can tend to go away. And if you look at that in secular culture, I think you can see evidence. And if you also you look at it in Christian culture, I think you can see evidence of that. Here's an example. When I was a kid, probably 10 or 11 years old, I think, um, I played Little League Baseball, and I wanted a new baseball glove. I needed a new baseball glove. My other one was falling apart. And so we had these things, and they were kind of like, they were kind of like newspapers. They were called catalogs. Do we remember catalogs? They were glossier than newspapers, and they had pictures. And what you did as a kid is you looked through the catalogs, and you marked with a pen all the things that you wanted, right? And if you really, really wanted it, you would cut it out, we ever do that? You know, you cut the thing out. Mom, Dad, I need this. Not I want this. That doesn't work. I need this. And my baseball glove was falling apart. So I got the service merchandise, was the name of the company, catalog. And I found the Rawlings baseball glove that I needed. I needed it. I got baseball. My glove's falling apart. And I cut it out. And I took it to my parents. Mom, Dad, I know you want me to play baseball and make you proud. If you want me to make you proud, I can't be wearing this little, you know, falling apart plastic baseball glove. I need the Rawlings baseball glove made of real leather. It's $35. Okay, this is a long time ago. I was 10 a long time ago. $35. And you know what they said to me? Oh, okay, here you go. You know what? Here's 40 Right? No. You know what my mom handed me? She gets this little tin box. And she comes over and she hands me the box. And I open the box. I'm like, there's not $35 in here. There's a problem. Is the box worth 35 
There's not even like eBay or Craigslist now. I can't sell it. She takes a little picture. She puts it in the box, hands me the box, and she says, when, you, when the box has enough money to buy the glove, then you can have the glove. Oh, are you going to put the money in the box for me, Mom? I'm going to earn it. I had a chore list, and I would get 10 cents a chore. A dime, okay? It takes a lot of dimes to make $35. But over the course of time, man, I had to have that baseball glove. I loved it. I needed it. I wanted it. I had to have it. And I raised $35 to, to buy that baseball glove. And I'd put my dimes in there, and if I did something, I got 50 cents, or if I got a dollar or whatever. And it took me months. But I remember we went to the store with my box, and I saw the glove, and that was only the display model, and you weren't allowed to take it off the shelf. You had to take a little tag. And you go over, and you give it to the lady, and you dump out your box with all your money. No sales tax in Delaware. Thank you, Jesus. And, and they count it all up, and then down the conveyor belt comes my new baseball glove. Oh, I was in heaven. I smelled it. It was amazing, and I loved it. Do you know I still have that baseball glove today? You can ask my wife and my kids. I still have it. It still works. $35. But there was a tenacity. There was grit in my life that caused me to want to work for that thing. That tenacity is going away in so many areas. But my concern today is how that tenacity is faltering in the Christian walk. Like how our culture and our subcultures uh, come into play and how all of the things of easier is better like seeps into the Christian life and we think like if I pray for this once then God should be obligated to give it to me right like if I ask then I'm supposed to receive what do you mean I have to pray for something for years and years and years and years and wait and pray and more and more no 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 I pray for it then I get it right if I can microwave a burrito alright that didn't hit if I can air fry some fish if I can air fry something and have it in seven minutes, I should be able to pray and God give it to me quick, right? But it just like kind of seeps into so many things. And you know what happens? Is then it doesn't get answered and then we lose heart. And it's so easy for all the injustice and all of the things that are going on and the evil and the wickedness and all the stuff that goes on in life that I just give up and lose heart instead of having the tenacity that it takes. And I want to say a, another word about this whole thing because there's this other word that's going around in our culture and, and it's making its way, it has made its way into Christian circles for a long time. And it, the word is motivation. You need to be motivated. You need to have the motivation. You know, if you have the tenacity, you'll have it if you can be motivated. We need to motivate ourselves. We need motivational speakers. And I need a motivational book. And I told the first service, I have to stand and apologize because you have the anti-motivational pastor. Here's what I know about motivation. Motivation is built on feelings. Motivation is built on emotions, how, how I feel. Do I feel motivated to do this? So I was at the gym this week, and somebody said something about, like, being motivated to be there. And I, said, I looked at him, and I said, you know what? My motivation has me in bed right now. My determination has me here right now. There's a massive difference between motivation and determination. And tenacity and grit and persistence comes from determination a lot more than it comes from motivation. And I believe that there are times for us to be motivated by things. I do believe that sometimes we want you to come in here and, ha and feel motivated to, to go out and live the life that God's called you to live and read Scripture and do all those things. 
But I said, I'd work out like, you know, semi-annually if I was just going off of motivation, right? <laughs> but it's the determination. It gets me up every day, and it's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. Come on. And we keep going. But let me tell you something. Some of us, like, live our marriage lives through motivation. I don't feel very motivated today. I don't feel very motivated tomorrow or the next day. And we need to replace that motivation with some determination. Some of us parent only out of motivation, right? Some of us pursue our relationship with the Lord only when we're motivated. What we need is some tenacity and some stick-to-itiveness. Remember that word? The tenacity and the persistence to when I don't feel like it, when it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel like I want to, to maintain that persistence. Because I bet that if we were to carry out Jesus' story, that that widow didn't feel like getting up every day and going to the courthouse. She didn't feel like getting up every day and being ostracized by every man that was there when she was the woman that showed up and having to beg and plead and beg and plead and beg and plead. I bet it was determination a lot more than motivation that got her out of bed every day and got her there to ask for what she was entitled to. That we need determination. There's something else in these verses. It says in verse 7, God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. He will not delay over them. I'll say more about that in a minute. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I just want to say a word to you about God as the just judge. A lot of talk today about the God of love, and we believe that God is a God of love. Amen. If it weren't for the love of God, none of us would be here. But part of the love of God is that God is just. You see, God can't be who God is and truly be loving without being just. That as you look at Scripture and as you read through Scripture, and there's Scriptures all over the Old and New Testament talk about the justice of God. God's justice is perfect. And the timing of God's justice is perfect. That, That God's justice is equitable. There's lots of talk in our day about being equitable. That God's justice is equitable, and it's righteous, and it's fair. All the things that sometimes God gets judged by secular people for are the things that make God's justice right. That it's equitable, and it's fair, and it's pure, and it's perfect. But as you read God's Word, don't miss that God is a judge. But unlike the corrupt judge in the story, God is the perfect judge. God is the just judge. And here's what that means. You can trust God's justice. Let me me say that again. You can trust God's justice. Here's what I know. When I get angry at someone, when someone says something or does something that I don't like, I have a really good picture of what justice looks like. You get that? Someone cuts you off in traffic? You got a pretty good picture of what justice looks like for them, right? It's usually their car rolling into a fiery crash, right? Or at least them getting rear-ended by somebody else. We have a pretty good picture of what we think justice should be. Whatever it is, someone's harmed you, hurt you, said mean things about you, done something bad to you, whatever it is, like you have a picture of what justice should look like. And here's what I have to realize in my own life, that I need to trust God. God's justice. Like his picture of justice and mine might look different. But if God's justice is perfect and mine is imperfect, I need to trust in God's justice. 
You can trust God's justice, and you know what else? You can trust God's timing. I need to hear that. Because usually I want justice, and I want it yesterday. Right? I want justice to happen immediately. I look at like things that go on in the world, and I get angry. I get mad. When I see people, innocent people being hurt, and things like that, I, just, I get mad, and I want justice to happen now. The scripture says that, that we can trust God's justice and we can also trust God's timing. And you and I know that like I have my timing. God has God's timing and God's timing is perfect and my timing is imperfect. What I need to try to do is to, to trust God's justice and trust God's timing. Because he's the perfect judge and I'm not. Look at verse 1. Because verse 1 is... Really, Jesus gives the purpose, the, the, the application of the parable right there, right at the beginning. He told them a parable to the effect. That means for the purpose of. To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In the midst of all the stories, and Jesus here in this section of Luke is making what's known as the journey to Jerusalem. And he's in Luke's gospel, he's picked up some disciples along the way, and he's done his miracles, and he's journeying to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified, and unjustly tried, convicted, and murdered. And he'll rise again from the dead, and you know the rest of the story. But in this travelogue, in this part of the story, as he's going through here, he tells this story because he knows that many of his disciples are going to lose heart. Jesus knows that there will be times when you will lose heart. I want you to know that about the Lord. I don't know where you're at today or what you're going through. The interesting thing about having two services and having lots of different people and new people come in is that every week, I don't know what's going on in everyone's life. And I do know what's going on in some of your lives. And so I know, and I want to acknowledge that there are temptations to lose heart. When I stand up here and I look out at all of you, that's the thing about having a, a smaller church. Is that I see so many stories. And I actually feel those things. And there are lots of stories that I know, and then I know that there are many that I don't know. But I do know that for all of us as, as Christians, there can be a trial and a temptation to lose heart. But I want you to know that Jesus knows that. And the reason stories like this are in the Bible is because he knows that there will be times when you're tempted to lose heart. In light of the present injustice in our world and the decay of society, and our personal experiences and all of those things, and as well as like what seems to be a delay in Christ's coming, that it's easy to give up hope. He says that they would always pray and not lose heart. And I said, what does it mean to lose heart? Some of the words are discouragement, depression, being frustrated, being weary. A Greek lexicon says this about the, the word that's translated lose heart. It's just one word in the original language. To lose one's motivation to accomplish some valid goal. What goes away when you lose heart? It's like, I don't feel like it. I don't want to, right? Our motivation goes away. The, the feeling to want to follow the Lord starts to wane. Maybe that's you today, and God has this word for you. To, to give up hope is what... It means to lose heart. Try to think about, like, why do we lose heart as Christians? I think there, there are, like, trials, right? Hardships that we face. Personal things that we face. Very difficult situations that we face. And it's really easy 
to like just say why God and give up and, and to lose heart. Loss and brokenness are the reasons that people give up, lose heart. Evil, wickedness, and injustice in our world. Like those are reasons that people l- lose hope. I would say the temptation to sin is a reason that people give up hope. I've seen it over and over again. This Christian lifestyle looks so difficult and so hard, and there's all this cross-bearing and all that stuff. But man, it looks like if I follow the way of the world, if I live a worldly lifestyle, it looks so much more fun and enticing and exciting, and I'll be happy. And then people give up and lose heart and turn away from the Lord. There's another reason, and I think it may be the biggest reason. I want to address it specifically, and that reason is unanswered prayer. You see, the lady, the widow in this story is persistent in asking over and over and over again. And that's the tie to what Jesus says we all always to pray and not lose heart. Some of us have been praying for things or for people for months and years. And it doesn't seem like God's answering. That's really hard. Like, I want to acknowledge that that's really hard. We don't want to be trite with that. Because if that's you and that's your circumstance... It can really, really feel like God is not there or not listening. It can really, really feel like God doesn't really care. God can seem a lot like that unjust judge with his arms crossed, like, I don't really want to do this. And if you have that prayer that you've been praying for months or years, we want to acknowledge that that's a difficult, difficult place to be. You might ask me the question, like, why? Like, why would God do that? And ultimately, I don't have an answer in your particular case of why God might be doing that. But I would offer these thoughts to help us process that. As I, as I think about prayer, if we were going to build like a, a robust theology, like a, a good, strong theology of prayer, we believe that God hears prayer, answers prayer. We believe that God gives good gifts to his children. We believe that in the sovereignty, the providence of God, and that in God's sovereignty, he ordained prayer, and he ordained your prayers for things to change situations or to to impact situations and things and people, that our prayers fit into God's plans. But in addition to that, here's what we need to know and understand, that I think that the primary purpose for prayer is to change my heart, not to change God's mind. I really believe that the primary reason that God set up this whole thing called prayer, why Jesus commanded people to, to pray, why we even have this idea of prayer is ultimately more about changing me than it is about changing other people and other circumstances and other things or changing God. And there's this really jacked up philosophy of prayer right now that's kind of like if you ask and you ask enough and you ask hard enough and if you ask with the right amount of faith, then God's going to answer your prayers. Actually, God's obligated to answer your prayers, right? And you're going to see that because you're going to see physical healings and you're going to see spiritual healings and you might even see like a new Corvette in your front yard. If you just pray for the right things, right? And that's a dangerous, ugly, sinful theology of prayer. The prayer is more about me change, about changing me than about changing God. That's why when he says you ought always to pray and not lose heart, the always pray is just continuing saying, God, I trust you. God, I'm placing my faith in you. God, this is about you, not me. And we want to acknowledge that it is difficult when you're praying for that thing that you want so, so much. But that's why the trust is so, so important. That we ought always to pray 
and not give heart. We acknowledge that it's easy to lose heart in this culture. I acknowledge that if you spend most of your time in this and very little of your time here, guys, you're going to lose heart. Like, if you watch Fox News more than you read your Bible, don't be surprised when you're like spiritually a mess. I'm not even joking about that. But if we spend all of our time fighting the political battles and all of our time fighting all of the other news battles and figuring all of that stuff out and we're not spending time loving God and pursuing God and praying about all of those things, right? When I pray, should I pray for politics? What did Paul tell Timothy? I want holy men everywhere to get their hands up. He wasn't a Baptist. To raise your hands, right? And pray. And pray for those in the government. We want to pray politically, but it's not, hey, God, burn that down and bring in your new world order, right? They're bringing in a different new world order. God, you bring in your world order. No. We need to pray in such a way that we pray for what we believe God wants us to, to pray for in terms of the change. I believe that wholeheartedly. But that we at all times entrust those things to God. You're praying for an unsaved friend or family member. Man, we know. We, like, we want to see those people come to Christ. Keep entrusting it to God. Always pray. Don't lose heart. You're praying for a physical or spiritual healing for someone. Continue to give that to God, showing him, God, I, I entrust this to you. Guys, it changes the way that we pray. So the invitation this morning is real simple. It's number one, pray tenaciously. Like, what are the things that you have to pray for? What are the things that God's put on your heart to pray for? Pray tenaciously. That means for some of us, pray, right? I'm like, what time, when's the last time you prayed? Why? Well, I mean, I pray for breakfast this morning, right? If your prayer repetition is, like, rather than the Lord's Prayer, it's God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for His food, we need to expand it a little bit. Praying and praying regularly. I heard a pastor say recently that one of the best, there, there's a really great place to pray, um, and, and we all have this place available to us. As a matter of fact, most of us have two or three of them, and they're called mobile tabernacles. Did you know there are mobile tabernacles all over the place where you can meet with God, and, and they move around, and you can meet with God in your own mobile tabernacle? Some of you have two of them. Some of you have three of them. Mobile tabernacles. You know what they are, right? Yeah, it's your car. You get in your car. You're in there by yourself, right? Turn off the country music or the sports talk radio. It's your mobile tabernacle. You're talking to God. You're meeting with God right there. And I would submit to you that traffic on Meridian would become much more bearable if you're in your mobile tabernacle than if you're in your race car. I'm just throwing it out there, right? But praying persistently, like we could take that and like as we get in our car, God, here are my five things. Every time I get in the car, I'm going to pray for these five things. That's tenacity in prayer, you guys. Pray tenaciously and then trust tenaciously. Trust God tenaciously. I'm going to leave you with two scripture passages in conclusion this morning. I'm not going to preach on them. Don't worry. Relax. I just want to read them for you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. It doesn't seem very speedy, God. It doesn't seem like you're working. And I say he's not working on my timetable, but he's working on his. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Because, yeah, we do, right? 
But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We can trust God's justice, and we can trust God's timing. The other one I want to share with you is from a little bit more obscure places, from Lamentations chapter 3. We don't do a lot of Old Testament, really, and this is a good one. Lamentations chapter 3. As a matter of fact, as I read some of these verses, you're going to be like, oh, that's from the Bible? I thought it was from a song from like the 80s. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I won't sing it. I did that a couple weeks ago. It was embarrassing. I won't subject you to that again. But those are words from the Bible. But here's what's interesting. is if you read Lamentations 3, verse 1 starts out like this. I am the man who has seen affliction under the wrath of under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me to dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Does that ever feel like your life? Like he, that's God by the way, as, as, as Jeremiah writes this in his referring to God. Does it ever feel like your life? And you can read verses 1 through 20 of Lamentations 3. I would encourage you to do so. And you can say, like, this guy has got some issues. He needs counseling. But he feels what it means to lose heart. But then in verse 21, he says this, But, after all that, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. I want to encourage you to have tenacity and trusting God, and tenacity, and praying to God, and tenacity, and put your hope in God, because that's the only hope we, we really have. Amen? Let's pray this morning. God, we again thank you for these stories of Jesus, and how they hit us uh, right where we need to be hit. And I pray for the person here who's struggling and losing hope, whether it's spiritually losing hope, or just kind of in life, just feeling discouraged, or feeling depressed or like really, really feeling uh, like you've left them or you turned your back on them. God, would this passage of Scripture cause us to dig deeper into your Word to see who you really are and how you really feel about your children? And God, would you encourage us with hope this morning? And would that hope then help us to be determined to have the tenacity that we need to keep loving you, keep trusting you? to keep reaching out to you in prayer and laying these things before you, showing our trust. God, in you and you alone, we put our hope. We know that you won't leave us, forsake us, that you won't betray us. And so we say today that we trust in you and put our hope in you. In Jesus' name.